0: Have you ever been told to just be yourself? Just be yourself. You might have been acting weird or you didn't know how to prep for something. Maybe you had a big job interview and someone who wanted to give you good advice said, just be yourself. Maybe you were going out on a date and you wanted to impress somebody. And so you're wondering, you know, should I talk about these things? I have some weird habits. Maybe I shouldn't let them on to some of my weird habits. And someone wanted to encourage you and say, just be yourself. What does that even mean to just be yourself? Can you act in a way that is really different from who you are? If you act a certain way, does that make you who you are? Are you defined by your actions? What makes you, you? Last week, we had Indian Bible College here, and it was really kind of cool. Uh, the the first student to get up and speak, she talked about, she identified herself not just with her name, but she then went on through her ancestors and, and identified herself by who her parents and her grandparents are. And some of us think, man, that's a really cool way. And Jason, the president of IBC, even got up and he talked about like the difference between uh, the Navajo culture and the Western American culture of, you know, they would identify by their clans, whereas in the Western culture, we would identify ourselves by what we do. And so some of us were like, man, that's so cool. I kind of wish we would do that. But some of us then reflect on who our grandparents are and who our great-grandparents are, and they think we think, there's no way I want to be identified with that crazy bunch over there. And so we kind of reject that, and we go an opposite route, and we say, instead of being identified by, you know, all of these, people from my past, I want to be identified by my actions, and so I want to embrace that Western culture, and I want to tell people, my name is Aaron Holbert, I'm a senior pastor, I have two master's degrees, and I can go down and walk through all of my list of accomplishments and brag about how great I am because of what I've done. And I think maybe that who I am is just a list of accomplishments, Those accomplishments aren't who I really am. And ultimately, those accomplishments will let me down. Because there's always more to accomplish. And at some point, you will fail. But maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you are defining yourself by your accomplishments, but your accomplishments are you got high last night. That's what you accomplished. You accomplished the ability to get pregnant before you were married. And so you define yourself as this horrible person who is stuck in sin and a slave to sin, and there's no way you can ever break free. And so all you see, when you look at yourself in the mirror, all you see is this stupid, horrible person that no one could ever love. As we've been going through this series better together and we've been studying Ephesians, we have learned that God is actually the one who gets to define who you are. You are not identified in God's eyes. You are not defined by who your ancestors are. And you are not defined by your list of achievements or your list of failures. You are defined by God. And in chapter 2, we learned that he calls us his workmanship. And that word for workmanship literally means masterpiece. That you are God's original artwork. And when God looks upon you, he sees his original artwork. Now, sometimes I think about my kids when I think about original artwork. Because my kids produce a lot of original artwork. And they love that artwork. And they want you to love that artwork. And one time I made the mistake of being like... You know, my kid handed me this original artwork, and I looked at it, and it was a bunch of scribbles with some messy color, and I was like, oh, cool, I'm going to throw it away now. And my child was really offended. Think about God. Looking at you as his original artwork, his masterpiece. And you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I'm just a piece of junk. That's offensive to God. You're calling his original artwork a piece of junk. So we've been walking through this series better together, and we've been learning this, We learned this robust theology in the first three chapters, that God calls you who, who he has created you to be. He calls you his masterpiece. He calls you his son or daughter. He says you are a child of God. And then he lists out all of these amazing spiritual blessings that he has given you. And then we got to chapter 4, and we learned the application part. Based on the theology, based on the theology of the first three chapters, that you are his original artwork, That you have. That, but because you had rebelled against him at some point in your life, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you had rebelled, you had shaken your fist against God, and you had become a slave to sin, even though you were his original artwork. But when you came to know Christ, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, he made you alive together with him based on all of this theology. Then in chapter four, he begins to tell us the application. How should we then live? And it's really important that we don't get those two confused. Oftentimes people think if I start living this way, then I will earn the theology of the first three chapters. And that's wrong. The first Three chapters lay out a theology that then gives us how we should then live. So we get into all of this, how we can live. And in chapter 4, Paul uses the analogy of clothing. That you used to be defined by your actions, but now you're defined by God. So take off the old clothing. Take off those old, stinky clothes of being defined by your behavior, and put on the new clothing that comes with this new identity. And this new identity is what we will talk about today. How do you define yourself? So open up with me to, to uh, Ephesians 5, if you will. We'll go one through four, verses 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore let do not sorry therefore do not become partakers with them for at one time you were darkness but now you are light in the Lord walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that, do, that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. So chapter 5 begins with a therefore. We always want to know what the therefore is there for, right? We always want to back up a little bit, and it's connecting two ideas. So if we back up just to, to chapter 4, verse 32, he ends with, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Because God in Christ forgave you, because you have been given, forgiven, although you were rebellious in your sins, although you shook your fist at God and said, Forget you, God, I want to do things my way. God still forgave you. Therefore, because you have experienced God's forgiveness, therefore be imitators of God. It's like he's saying, here's the gold standard of what this new life looks like. You have a new identity. It's time to act out this identity. Here is the gold standard. God. Be an imitator of God. In order to imitate something, you need to study it, right? You need to Look at it. When an actor takes on a new role, they're going to they're imitate this new personality. They're going to imitate this, maybe an accent. What do they do? Do they, they totally ignore it? I'm not good with accents. Jen always laughs. They're really horrible. If you ever want to hear a horrible accent of anything, ask me to give you an accent and it will be a mash of all kinds of crazy different accents. One of the reasons why is cuz I I can't hear very well. I worked for an airline for several years. My hearing's gone. I can't hear very well. So I can't hear all the nuances of an accent. So that's why I just give horrible accents. But if an actor wanted to be wanted to give you a good accent, what would they do? They'd go study that accent, right? They'd listen to that accent. If we are going to be imitators of Christ, one of the things that we have to do, is or imitators of God, one of the things we have to do is study God. We have to study what Christ did on this earth. We have to look. What is His character? How does He do things? If we are not studying God, we cannot be an imitator of God. So, because we've been forgiven, therefore, imitate God as beloved children and walk in love... So how are we going Now he's going to start to describe how we're going to imitate God. One of the or the first thing he tells us is walk in love. One of our problems, I think in our culture, is we have a generic use of the term love. The example I always love to give is I love my kids. I love mountain biking. I love tacos. And I love my wife. Now, hopefully, those aren't all the same types of love. Right? But just from hearing me talk, you wouldn't necessarily know that those are different types of love. You might think that my wife and tacos are on the same plane there. It's ridiculous. It's preposterous. But we use this generic type of love. And really what we mean, what we typically mean when we say love, is we mean we enjoy or delight. So when I say, I love tacos, that really means I enjoy tacos, right? When I say I love mountain biking, that really means I enjoy mountain biking. But the problem is, a lot of Americans start to just use that for everything. And we have this blank terminology of love just meaning I delight in or I enjoy. And so we, we hear phrases like love is love. That can't be true. Not all loves are equal. Not all loves are the same. Clearly my love for tacos, if I never ate another taco the rest of my life, I could still die a happy man. The same is not true for my children. If I never went mountain biking again, A day in my life, I could die a happy man. I could still die with full of joy. And I could still die full of joy even if my kids died. But the impact of losing mountain biking and the impact of losing my kids would be drastically different. There would not actually be a whole lot of grieving with mountain biking. The rest of my life, I would be walking with grief if I lost my children. Do we see how different this is? This generic term love actually does a huge disservice in our culture. And so we hear phrases like love is love, but not all loves are equal. Not all love is the same. To enjoy something doesn't mean you really have a biblical love for something. So here the term is walk in agape now in the greek there are different terms for love agape is a self-sacrificing do what is right for the other person no matter what type of love that's the love we're commanded to walk in it's not just enjoying someone although i do enjoy my wife although i do enjoy my children That's not the type of love that I have for them. The love that I'm commanded to have for them is to walk in a self-sacrificial type of love. To do what is best for them, no matter what. So oftentimes in America, we define love in this delight or enjoyment, and it's really kind of a selfish thing, isn't it? we've turned love into a selfish act. I enjoy you, so I love you. Which really describes why we see so much divorce. Because people think they're in love, and so they're saying, I enjoy you, I love you, but what do you do when the person is no longer enjoyable? Well do you really love them anymore? We've totally messed up the term love. But when you commit to a self-sacrificing, doing what is best for the other person type of love, no matter what, then even when that person is not enjoyable, even when that person is frustrating, you can still do what is best for them. You can still be committed to them. And that is what we are called to do. And Christ is the gold standard for us. Christ is the ultimate example. And if we picture Him in heaven, enjoying the community He has with the Father and the Spirit, not knowing pain, but taking on human flesh, So that he could die in your place. Experiencing the full wrath of God against unrighteousness. In your place. That is self-sacrificing love. That's the gold standard. That is what we are being commanded to imitate. And he goes on to describe it. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This term, fragrant offering, is an Old Testament term. It's an idiom meaning acceptable to God, and it was based on the heart of one bringing the sacrifice. So if two people were to bring a sacrifice, and let's say someone had a crooked heart, but had a much better looking sacrifice, that sacrifice wasn't as acceptable as the one who was bringing maybe a flawed sacrifice, but had a heart that was right after God. And that's the whole point, is that Jesus didn't just do the behaviors, but Jesus had a heart that was in the right spot. And it was not concerned with himself. He wasn't selfishly doing these things, but he had a heart that was concerned with the glory of God and the good of his creation. And so that is the gold standard, that he is this fragrant offering with this heart that is for God's glory and for the good of others. And then Paul gives us a contrast, but. This is a huge contrast. If this is the gold standard and this is how we are to walk, then these are the things to avoid. This is the walk that we shouldn't be entering into. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. And so he gives us this contrast, and then he's actually going to give us three lists of things that we should avoid, of a way of walking, of actions that we shouldn't have. If we we're looking at chapter four, it would be the old clothing that we should discard. So sexual immorality, the word here is pornea. I think you already know the trant of what we would get our word porn from, or pornography. It's from this term, pornea. The best definition I've ever heard of pornography is something that elicits a wrongful desire. There was a huge Supreme Court case decades ago about freedom of speech and whether or not it covered pornography. And one of the justices was asked to define pornography. And he said, "Oh, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. I think that's a bit of a cop-out. I think this is a great definition. A lot of people struggle with this word pornography and how to define it. Something that elicits a wrongful desire would be pornography. Something that elicits a wrongful desire. So God designed sex. And there is a way to enjoy sex that is glorifying to God. And which fulfills the design that is good for us. So God designed it. There is a way, because he designed it, there is a way that we can interact with it that is glorifying to him and is good for us. But our culture has taken what is good and has perverted it. So when we have sex outside the boundaries that God created it for, it perverts sex, it cheapens it, and actually does damage to us. So this pornea is anything that elicits this wrongful desire, Whereas the word covetousness here is, should really be translated as greedy. And the idea is that greediness is connected with impurity and sexual immorality. So it's really this, uh, this person that is greedy for more sex. And I would say that this person who is greedy for more sex is greedy because this person is looking for something to satisfy them. So we go back to this purpose of sex. And the purpose of sex is to give us intimacy and to procreate. But but God, within this idea of procreation, gave us this ability to be really intimate, as physically intimate as you possibly can be with somebody, to be fully known and know somebody. That is one of the... It's a bonding action. And we have a desire in our life To be known and to know someone. To be truly intimate with someone. And this physical desire actually reveals a deeper desire, which is to be known by God. Sex, which gives us a picture of intimacy, is only a picture of a greater intimacy with God. So when people do not feel known by God, and when they don't know God, they begin to search for this desire in different ways. Now, I say when they do not feel known by God, because God knows you. Even if you don't feel known by God, God knows you. You are his masterpiece. You are his original artwork. He created you. He knows you inside and out. He actually knows you better than you know yourself. Far better than you can actually know yourself. So sometimes you don't feel known by God. But the reason why you don't feel known by God is because you haven't established a relationship with Him. You haven't pursued Him. So because you don't know God, you don't feel known by God. And because you don't feel known by God and because you don't know God, you pursue intimacy in different ways. I like to call it intimacy light. You start pursuing what I call intimacy light. It's not true intimacy. It's not really knowing and being known by someone. But for a brief time, when you are physically intimate with someone, you feel known. And you feel like you know. But the problem is, it only gives you a brief feeling. And I call it intimacy light because it doesn't actually fulfill. And if you know the the feeling you get when you first hold hands with someone, that feeling you get, that little spark you get when, when someone's eyes meet your eyes across the room and you feel like this person thinks I'm special. There's actually a chemical that's released in your body that makes you feel good and some people, some, uh, some psychologists think that you can get addicted to this feeling because it, it releases this, uh, this chemical in your body and you start to feel good. But what happens as you continue to, to get to know each other is eventually that chemical wears off. You can't live on that chemical for the rest of your life. And so then you think, well, I'm no longer in love. And you turn to someone else who catches your eye as well. And your heart beats a little bit quicker when they begin to hold your hand. And what's crazy about that is you leave them just at the time when you're actually starting to feel true intimacy. Because you actually start to become known, which is why that chemical is wearing off. So people pursue it because they're looking to be known. They're looking for true fulfillment true intimacy, and what they really get is intimacy life. He continues, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So here we've got a list that, that revolves around speech. So first we had sex and intimacy, now we've got how you speak. This category is all about talk. What comes out of our mouths actually reveals what is in our heart. What comes out of our mouth actually reveals what is in our heart. So the term filthiness here, the Greek term literally means ugly. So the idea is obscene speech or speech that references unnatural or crude suggestions towards sexual behavior. So ugly speech is what it's really getting to. So the sexual innuendos that are made at work. Or how about when you're just hanging out with the guys and think just a little bit of crude speech is okay. That type of speech is not imitating Christ. The term foolish talk is literally moronic. It's where we get the term moron from. And usually it was a reference to someone who was talking while drunk. So that begins to give you a picture of what this foolish talk really means. When someone is talking while drunk, they're not weighing their speech very well. They're kind of like blabbermouths. So, a couple weeks ago when I had surgery, I was coming out of the anesthesia, and I actually was a blabbermouth. <laughs> Jen was laughing pretty hard. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I, I was just really talkative. And I was like, I was like pointing at the doctor, and I was like, hey man, you did an awesome job. Yes, you were, I, man. <laughs> I'm still feeling the anesthesia. I don't know how great of a job they did at all. Did they there was a big bandage? I don't know if they I don't know if they even did the stitches right at this point, but I'm like talking them up. I wasn't weighing my speech at all. And that's kind of what this is what that's a reference to. Someone who's not weighing their speech. So the idea is someone who is drunk, they don't carefully weigh their speech, but they feel free to say things that they know better than to say. Now contrast that with someone who is talking with love. When you're talking to someone with love, when you really care about uh, about the impact of your words, you weigh your words. How is this going to impact this person? And you begin to think before you speak. So not only... Should we not have filthiness or foolish talk? But he also throws in crude joking. And these are jokes that are offensive. This could be jokes that are in bad taste, have sexual overtones, or simply make fun of someone else. And I hear people do this all the time. And then they justify it by saying, well, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. It's okay. And it might hurt your feelings. It could even dig really deep and hurt bad. But they smile at you and they say, but it's just a joke. I didn't mean anything by it. And so you can never actually confront them about it because it's just a joke. You're being too sensitive. I'm just joking around. And Paul is saying that this type of joking, belittling people, tearing people down for your own enjoyment is not like Christ. If we look at the first list, we can contrast what imitating Christ and walking in love looks like with using and abusing people to make myself feel good, using and abusing people to to try to feel this level of intimacy. At this point, we can look at how does imitating Christ and walking in love contrast with this type of speech, and it really comes down to when you're walking in love, you care about your speech and how it affects other people. But when you're not walking in love, you don't care about how your words impact someone else. You just care about building your own ego, making yourself feel better. And how often do we run into somebody that belittles us, or how often do we do the same thing, where we belittle someone else, we make fun of someone else, just so I can feel better about my own life? Just so I can feel better. And I even see people with theology do this. Belittle someone else's theology to make my theology feel good. And it's not right. And it's not walking with love. So these three types of speech reveal a heart that is more concerned with our own ego than the consequences of your speech and building yourself up at the expense of others. Then he continues, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So the, the idea that he's getting at here is, if you've put your faith in Christ, Sorry about that. So the idea here is that if you've put your faith in Christ, then you won't walk this way. So this is the issue. There, Sorry, let me back up. If you have really put your faith in Christ, but still have a heart that is struggling with the old clothing, the old life, then you need to ask yourself, what truths about the riches in Christ am I not believing? Each one of these struggles, sexual sin, greed foolishness, obscene, crude joking, reveals a heart issue that has not been dealt with. When we are focusing more on ourselves than caring about other people, when we are not walking in love, it reveals a heart issue that goes back to the theology found in the first three chapters. Maybe you don't actually believe that you are God's original artwork. Maybe you don't believe that he has made you righteous, that he has justified you. And so you are quick to point out how someone else is flawed in hopes that someone won't see your flaws. All of these issues go back to not having a good grasp on the theology found in the first three chapters. So the way to change this isn't to just stop talking like that. It's not just to try harder. It's not to stop thinking like that. How many of us have run into that struggle where we think I can just try harder and we develop a try harder theology that if I just try harder, I'll become more righteous. If I just try harder, I'll become more holy. If I just work harder, I'll quit doing those sinful behaviors that I hate to do. And yet we continue to fail because the harder you try, the more you're focused on that sin, and the more you fall back into that sin. So this is not a try-harder theology. The solution is to replace the bad theology with the good theology, to go back to the truth of who you are in Christ, and remind yourself of the truth. Now, if we just stopped in verse 5, for you may be sure that of of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who is covetous, as no inheritance of the kingdom of God. If we just stop there, it might sound like anyone who ever does any of these things is not saved. And then we would run into some issues because anytime I accidentally made a joke at someone's expense or maybe not even accidentally, anytime I messed up and I said a crude joke, I might question my salvation. But this is not a verse about salvation. This is a verse about identity. The issue isn't salvation. The issue is identity. If you reject God's grace, your performance is based on your identity. But if you accept God's grace, your identity is no longer found in what you do, but who God has called you to be. So Paul is saying, stop acting like the old person. and act like the new identity God has given you. Verse 7 will show this isn't a salvation issue a little bit later, uh, but an identity one. But before we get to that, let's get to verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So uh, the idea here is that uh, the issue is that there were false teachers that were trying to convince them that these behaviors were no big deal. So the term empty means vain or untrue, devoid of purpose. And so some of these false teachers were coming around saying, hey, God's given you grace. Great. Now you can really live it up. God's made you holy, so go on and sin some more. And what Paul is getting at is that's not true either. God has made you holy. God has made you righteous, so now live like a holy, righteous person. So these false teachers were coming along saying that, hey, these these sin issues, they're not that big of a deal. And what Paul's saying is they are a big deal. These are sins that have separated man from God. These are sins that, because he cares, subjects man to God's wrath. Because they're a big deal, Paul gives us another command, and he starts it off with, therefore, therefore. Because these issues, because these sins are a big deal, therefore do not become partakers with them. Do not act with them. At one time you were defined by your behavior, now you're defined by what Christ has done. Do not enter back into those sins. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children in the light. The four here connects the last idea, with this new one. Do not partner because at one time, do not walk with them, do not partner with them because at one time your identity was that way, but now you have a new identity. You are no longer that. Notice here that it does not say you were in darkness, but that you were darkness. You were at the very core, the very essence of your being was in rebellion against God. You were darkness. But notice also here that it doesn't say you are walking in light, but that you are light. God, when he made you a new creation, took you from being at the very core, darkness, at the very core in rebellion against him, and has now made you at the very core, light. He has at the very core made you a new creation that he has called holy and righteous and pure and washed. And because you are at the very core, light, your identity is at the very core, light, walk as someone who is light. To act like dark when you've been made light just doesn't fit. It's like a fish out of water, it just doesn't work. Therefore, someone who has been made light should act as if you're someone who is light. You should not act as if you are dark. It just doesn't work anymore. And he continues in verse 9 For the ver- fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So, as we imitate Christ, we will walk and we will wear what is good, what is morally excellent, and what is right, which has a moral stand, or what is according to God's moral standard, and what is true, that which corresponds to what is real. So as we walk out the light, as we live in love and we walk in love, God grows us and he matures us in this list, in what is uh, good and right and true. The fruit of life living of our new identity is what is good, what is right, and what is true. As we imitate Christ, as we continue to build our relationship with him, as we submit to his word, he grows us in the ability to walk this way. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Because we are light, we should be asking, what pleases God? It's no longer about what pleases me, but what pleases God. So we need to stop making excuses for our bad behavior and start living out the theology of the first three chapters. And when, as we do that, we will need discernment in every area of life. I like the way one commentator put it. He said, Although Paul certainly handed on to those under his pastoral care a set of ethical teachings, he also intentionally left room for believers to make decisions by using their own renewed thinking. Essentially, what these lists do is they give us a set of principles. And then God... Has entrusted you with a new mind, a new way of thinking. You are a new person living in the light. And since he has given us commands that clearly spell out these principles for life, he then lets us use discernment that has that he has given us to discern what is right and wrong in every situation. So what we do is we are to take these principles and then apply them to different situations in our life. And he goes on in verse eleven. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So light exposes darkness. This doesn't mean we go around pointing out everyone's sin. That's not what Paul's getting at. He's not giving us a theology where we're just out there pointing, hey, you're a sinner, hey, you're a sinner, hey, you're a sinner. It does mean that as we walk in the light, it exposes the sin and lies of darkness. As we walk in light, that exposes the sin and the lies of the darkness. I love hearing from older couples about how long they've been married. I love hearing about how they met, about how they fell in love. I love seeing how they still love each other. I love it because it shows us that it can happen. It reveals that all those stories you hear about divorce, all those marriages that end, doesn't mean that yours will as well. When married people love each other well, it exposes the light that your marriage will end in divorce. I can't tell you, before I got married, I can't tell you how many people told me I would get divorced. But it was a lot. And as those married people that love each other well live in the light, it exposes that darkness. It exposes the lie. So as we walk in the light, it reveals the darkness or the dark lies that that people believe, that people in our culture believe. I believe it also shows that people who walk in darkness, as they are exposed to the light, will eventually convert to the light. And verse 14 will explain that for us. But let's move on to, to verse 12. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So this goes back to verse 11, and it's kind of repeating this idea that we shouldn't just go around wagging our finger at people. It's more of the idea that uh, as we live in the light, that light exposes the darkness. That as we live in the light, the darkness is revealed. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Paul explains the second half of verse 11 how this exposing takes place. When we live with love, joy, peace, patience in our life, as we forgive others, as Christ has forgiven us, even when they are hateful towards us, now I think it's always important to give that disclaimer that forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation. Forgiveness means not to hold sin against someone else or an offense. I, don't, I no longer hold that offense against them but it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to be reconciled to them. So as we live with forgiveness towards those who might even hate us, it reveals the darkness and the lies of the world. The world system is full of people who hate others. The world system is full of breaking us down into different classes for whatever reason, maybe political groups, and then once you find your group, You hate the other group, and you dehumanize the other group. As we live in forgiveness, it exposes the hate and the lies of the other group. As new creations, we should be imitating the love of Christ who died for a world in rebellion. It also reveals a changed heart. I think a changed heart is one of the greatest apologetics, one of the greatest defenses of the faith. When you have been stuck in sin, and there's no way you can get out other than by God's grace, it shows the world that there is a God who will interact and who will change our hearts. And that's way better apologetic than someone who knows all of the arguments, who knows uh, there are a ton of great arguments for creation. There's a ton of great arguments for the existence of God. There's a ton of great arguments for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But if they are said with a hateful heart, it will fall on deaf ears but when we show that God has changed our heart and we can give those arguments with love, peace, patience, and joy, then that gives people a reason to question, why do I believe these other philosophies that only produce hate? He goes on, For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So he gives us this quote, and what's interesting is nobody really knows where this quote comes from. It it seems a little out of context. We don't know, but we do know that that God has inspired Scripture, so we're going to take this as as something that God inspired Paul to to quote here. But it's interesting here. I think he outlines this, not so much for believers, but for unbelievers, that as we... Live in light, it exposes the darkness, and then people come to know Christ because we've been living in the light. For anything that becomes visible is light. This describes conversion. When you were darkness, you lived according to the darkness. But God used someone to shine the light on you, and you turned into light as well. You, if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you are a new creation with a new identity. As you remind yourself of that, you begin to live it out. And when you don't live it out, it's because you have a bad theology. You have a wrong belief about who you are and who God is. So the solution is to go back to the first three chapters and remind yourself of who God has created you to be, of who you are, and who God is. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that we don't have to just try harder That it's not about stop doing this and start doing that. But that you have given us the tools needed, that you have provided everything and that you change our heart. And that as we look more and more into who you have created us to be, as we look more and more into how you have changed us, we just naturally live out the commands you have given us. we begin to mature and to grow in the grace that You have lavished upon us. And we cannot thank You enough for that. In Your name we pray.